Would you grab your Bibles this morning and would you open up to the Gospel of Mark and we'll continue our series there in our text for this morning is Mark chapter 9 verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in front of you and you can find Mark 9 9 on page 844. Let's continue to worship our God as we hear his word read. Mark 9, 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do come to you this morning with glad and thankful hearts. You are the God of salvation. And what a glorious salvation you have revealed in your Son. You have not held our sin against us. You have not counted it up. But in Christ you have forgiven us. The debt has been paid in full. The blood of Jesus covers the people of God. And so we rejoice. What a glorious gospel we have. And Father, as we come to your word, we have many needs. We have remaining sin in our hearts. We have pride and unbelief. We have self-centeredness. And Father, we ask this morning as your word is preached and as your word works, that you would work powerfully in our hearts. That you would slay the many sins that yet reign within us. Father, we pray it is easy to be discouraged and grow despondent. And we ask, Would you encourage us through the word? Oh, Father, it's easy to wander from the path, and so we pray that you would warn us through the word, that you would draw us onto that straight and narrow path, and you would set our feet upon firm grounds. Oh, Father, we need you to work this morning. We're reminded of the psalmist's prayer. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? Well, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. And so, Father, this morning we come and we we look up to you and we ask for you to, to move and work amongst us. You are the maker of heaven and earth and of all of us. You are the God who gives sight to the blind. You are the God who gives hearing to the deaf. You are the God who raises the dead to life. And so, Father, we ask that you would work among us this morning. Father, would you do this for your glory and for our good, and we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. And so we only have one verse before us, and this verse highlights something. And so as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark so far, the first nine chapters, you may have noticed, if you're a keener, that we have been avoiding a certain theme. We have been working around a certain theme. I'll just let you think for a moment, well, what could that theme be? What have we been avoiding? What have we been working around? And that theme we've been avoiding is the theme of secrecy. And the great advantage of doing expository consecutive preaching is that when you, when you have an issue like this, you can punt it down the road and you can finally pick it up at an opportune time. And what we're going to do this morning is pick up that theme and, and think about it. So the theme of secrecy and silence is simply found everywhere in the first nine chapters of Mark's gospel. 
A theme of secrecy appears around Jesus' healing ministry. After Jesus healed the leper, he told the man this, See that you say nothing to anyone, but show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded you. And after Jesus raised Jairus' little daughter from the dead, he looked around at the awestruck family, and what did he do? Chapter 5, verse 43. And Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know about this. And again, Jesus, after healing the man who was both deaf and mute, Jesus charged them to tell no one. The theme of secrecy pervades the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus, instead of soaking up the accolades of the crowds, instead of planning on how to harness his growing popularity, instead of capitalizing on his newfound fame, what does Jesus do? What do we hear about Jesus? Well, chapter 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And time and time again in the Gospel of Mark, while the crowd is seeking him, we find Jesus fleeing from the crowd, searching out for a desolate place where he might have peace. And the theme of secrecy colors the very preaching and teaching of Jesus. While Jesus went about the, the small towns of Galilee preaching the gospel, in chapter 4, after telling the parable of the sower, Jesus begins to explain his, his teaching methodology, what he's doing. And he says this in chapter 4, verse 11 to his disciples. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And when we go to investigate the very identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he has come to do as the Messiah, what do we find? Again, we find secrecy. Peter confesses this before Jesus, you are the Christ. Then Mark records, And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And after Peter, James, and John travel with Jesus up on top of the mountain, and there before them, Jesus is is transfigured. The glory of God and the beauty of God shines from Jesus' face. What happens next? Well, Mark again records, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And in fact, if we leave behind the first nine chapters of Mark's gospel and we we fast forward to the very end of Mark's gospel, the the last verse of Mark's gospel, what do we find? We find silence. Chapter 16, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And so just from this brief overview, we can see that secrecy and silence was not an incidental component to Jesus' ministry. But the theme of secrecy and silence is woven into the very fabric of Jesus' story. If we look at Jesus' healings, we find secrecy. If we look at Jesus' teaching, we find secrecy. If we look at the very identity and mission of Jesus, we find the same thing. And so whatever we are to make of this Jesus, we find in the Gospel of Mark. Whatever we were to make of his announcement of the kingdom of God, whatever we were to think of his gospel, we have to take into account the theme of secrecy and silence. Now, it's one thing to note this pattern that we see in the first nine chapters of Mark's gospel. And it's called the Mark in secret. But it's another thing to know what to do with this secret we find. And as this theme settles in on us, this this theme should strike us odd for at least a few reasons. 
First, when we, when we think about this theme of secrecy, it seems to be at odds with the, very, the, the, the rest of the nature of the New Testament. When we look at the rest of the New Testament, there's this missionary outlook, there's this missionary impulse. So we can ask the New Testament a series of questions. Well, New Testament, who are we as God's people? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 explains we are a people of God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we can ask the New Testament, well, what are we to be ready to do as God's people? And again, 1 Peter 3.15 gives us an answer. It says, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Well, and as the people of God, what are we to be about? What is our mission? Well, Jesus' words, his famous words in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission should come to mind. What does Jesus say there? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so if we look at the New Testament, we are a people called to proclaim, a people called to defend, a people called to make disciples and teach and baptize. And so what are we to do with the mark in secret? What are we to do with the silence in Mark's gospel? And second, the theme of secrecy seems to be at odds with the very ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus compares his preaching of the kingdom of God to that of a sower who goes about liberally dispensing his seeds on all sorts of different types of grounds. And we see this this parable enacted in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is going about town to town preaching the Gospel to all who will hear. And in the same vein, Jesus sent out the twelve disciples on mission to Israel that they would make known the gospel and that they would call people to repent and respond to the gospel. And certainly folks would have asked the 12, well, who sent you? Where did you get this urgent message from? Where did you get this message from? And the disciples would have had to answer, well, I got this message I was sent from, that Jesus of Nazareth, have you heard of him and what he's been preaching and doing all over Galilee? Even more, Jesus stood before his most hostile enemies and declared truth about himself. While the Pharisees and the scribes were before him, what did Jesus say? He says, well, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then in another context, he said, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so when we look at the data in Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus is involved in a very public ministry. And at many points, he does not shy away from attention. He sends men out to preach the gospel. And he reveals himself. So what are we to do with the mark in secret? From the very outset, this sermon seems to be academic in nature. We can be thinking this morning, well, well, what does this secret have to do with anything with my life or my neighbors or my job? What does wrestling with these mind-numbing paradoxes do for my joylessness or the bickering that takes place in my own soul? What does this secret have to do with loving Jesus more? And so before we begin to tackle the mark in secret, I want to lay out before you what we will hopefully get done by God's grace. Or in other words, why it's good for us, why we need to to wrestle with the mark in secret. And I have two practical aims that I've been praying over for you all this week. And the first aim is this. That as we look at the mark in secret, that we would learn to better handle the scriptures with skill and integrity and in faithfulness. And as Christians, we understand that the book that we have before us, the book that we opened up and read from this morning, is a weighty book. Why is it weighty? 
But we know it is the very word of God. God has spoke this book. And the contents of this book are weighty. In this book, we learn of God, his salvation, and who we are. And what we do with this book is also weighty. If we read this book and believe what this book says and love what this book puts before us, what will we find? Well, we'll find salvation. But if we come to this book and misread this book and misuse this book and misunderstand this book and misapply this book, what will we find? We're only going to find judgment and death. So as God's people, it's imperative that we grow up in our skill of handling God's word, that we might do it with with skill and integrity and faithfulness. There's a second aim this morning as well. We're going to look at the mark in secret so that we would know Jesus better in the nature of his kingdom. What is Christianity all about? Well, Christianity is all about knowing Jesus. So if Jesus called for secrecy, we want to know what the secrecy was and why he did it and what it means for us as Jesus' people. The mark in secret is like a a window that we can look in and, and view Jesus from another angle. So as we move ahead this morning to meet these two practical, these these two important aims, we can roughly break up our time together into two segments. In our first segment, we're going to look at an example of how not to interpret the Scriptures, how not to handle God's Word, and we're going to draw some lessons out of that example for ourselves. And in the second segment, we're going to dive into the text for ourselves and see what this, this mark in secret reveals to us about Jesus. And so we can begin this morning by looking at how not to understand, how not to interpret the mark in secret. And so while we work through all the texts of the mark in secret this morning, they, they likely made us scratch our head a bit. This seems odd. This seems strange. This seems a bit curious. This secrecy has, has caused others to find fault with the gospel of Jesus and even with Jesus himself. And this is a case with a man by the name of William Reed. William Reed was a German-born man, born in the 1850s, and he, he comes to our attention this morning because he wrote a book on the very issue that we're trying to figure out, The Mark in Secret, and his book was entitled The Messianic Secret. Now, what you need to know about William Reed is one thing. He was among the radical critics, now known today as the Questers. And Reed, along with many of his day, approached the New Testament with two assumptions. First, Reed believed that Jesus existed. He believed that Jesus was a real man of history, that Jesus lived and he ministered in Galilee, that he had a a ministry of mercy to the crowds. He believed that Jesus taught the crowds. He even believed that Jesus went to Jerusalem and died there. And to this assumption, we can give a hearty amen to, yes, Jesus lived. We can agree with that. However, Reed's first assumption gives way to a second, a very troubling assumption. While Jesus existed, the scriptures do not give us an accurate picture of Jesus of history. So according to Reed, the miracles of Jesus, the mighty deeds of Jesus, the the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus, the very resurrection of Jesus never actually happened. And most importantly for Reed and his thinking about Jesus in the scriptures was this. Jesus actually never claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and he never thought he was. Rather, Reed believed that the church was carried away by the excesses of faith and superstition and imposed these events upon the life of Jesus and placed the many words of Christianity, language like the Son of God, language like the resurrection, into Jesus' mouth. Or we could simply say it this another way. Reed believed that there was an original painting of Jesus in the Scriptures. It's there. 
But the problem is with this painting is that the church has come along with its faith and it come along and, and painted over this original painting so that the original artwork could barely be seen, barely distinguishable. So Reed comes along and he has the acid of history and he's got the cleaning agents of, of modern empirical methods and he's going to set to work on the Gospels, on the Scriptures. And his task, as he understands it, was to strip away the foolish nonsense of faith and recover and restore the actual Jesus of history. And it's here with Reed, with his tools in his hands, coming to the text of Scripture, looking to recover and restore the actual Jesus of history, that Reed was reading the text that we read this morning about Jesus's secrecy. And he seized on these texts and he started to reason through them. We can just follow a bit of his reasoning. Well, why would Jesus want to keep his miracles secret? That seems strange. Normal people wouldn't do that. They'd say, hey, look here. Look what I have done. Even more, how could Jesus expect for silence after such great events like like healing a leper or, or healing a blind man or raising a little girl to life? How would that even be possible to keep Jairus' daughter a secret? She was living. The proof is right before everyone. Even more for Reed, why would Jesus command his disciples to keep his identity secret? Why, after seeing his glory on the mountain of transfiguration, would he command them to silence? And for Reed, the commands of silence that he found in the text of Scripture were just too convenient. They simply could not be historical in nature. They could not be from Jesus but rather an ingenious way for the church to, to smuggle the miraculous and the divine back into the story of Jesus. Jesus never did these works. Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus never spoke of his death or resurrection. Rather, the church, William Reed taught, did this through the mark in secret. It was a tool that the church could smuggle back in all of these things about Jesus that he never said or did. So read this morning. He says some some remarkable things about the scriptures, some weighty things about the scriptures. And so what are we to do with William Reed this morning? What are we to do with his radical skepticism? How are we to handle it? How are we to think about the scriptures? And as we think about William Reed's skepticism, we can respond to him with just two brief remarks. We can cut down his logic. And the first remark is this. If William Reed is, is right, he cannot know anything at all about Jesus. And so we can follow a bit of logic here this morning. If Mark was so wrong on the matters of divinity, if Mark was wrong on the matters of cross and resurrection and miracles, matters so integral to the identity and mission of Jesus, we can ask the great question, why would we trust Mark at all? If Mark was disingenuously putting words into Jesus' mouth about Messiahship, about being the Christ, about being the Son of God, why would we trust Mark about anything about Jesus, what he said? And if we follow Reed's skeptical logic to the very end, we will find a bitter end to it all. And the bitter end of Reed's logic is this. We will not be able to know anything about Jesus. What Reed is doing in his radical skepticism is he, he climbs up the tree and he, he stands on the branch. And what does he do? He takes his saw and he, he cuts the branch off that he is standing on. And the logic is this. If we can't trust Mark or any of the other gospel writers, how can we actually get any data about Jesus? And the answer is you can't. Where else are you going to find about Jesus? And so William Reed, according to his own logic, cannot prove his first assumption that Jesus actually existed. This gives way to a second remark. Why would the church believe and confess the divinity of Jesus? 
Why would the church believe and confess the cross and the, the resurrection and Jesus' many miracles and his messiahship uniformly and pervasively if Jesus himself did not teach and believe these things for himself? If Jesus never spoke of these things, if he never spoke of his messiahship, if he never spoke of his death and resurrection, if he never spoke of his sin-bearing, atoning, substitutionary death, where in the world would the apostles have gotten them from? How would they have reached such certain conclusions and felt the need to, to share these conclusions with everyone they met? What Reed is doing here in his radical skepticism is pay, playing whack-a-mole. Perhaps you've gone to the arcade and you've played whack-a-mole. You get this big bat and moles pop up and your job is to whack the mole down. But when you whack the mole down, another mole pops up. And the faster and the better you're at it, the more moles are popping up everywhere. And this is what Reed is doing. So he's playing whack-a-mole, and the, and the mole of the mark in secret pops up. And he knocks it down. He says, well, Jesus never said these things. He never did these things. Problem solved. We don't have this paradox anymore. But what happens? Well, another paradox pops up, and one that's not going to go away so easily for William Reed. And it's this. He leaves us with another paradox. The paradox is this, a church that confesses and worships Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified and raised, but who never himself claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God, who never spoke of his own death or resurrection. That just doesn't make sense. And so at the end of the day, William Reed and his proposal is neither satisfying or helpful. But before we leave behind Reed and his, his radical skepticism, he provides us a large caution. And essentially what we've been doing this morning is painting a large illustration of how not to handle the scriptures, how not to handle God's good words. And so we can learn from Reed's life. We can learn from what Reed has done. And we learn this. How we approach the scriptures is of utmost importance. If we come to the scriptures in pride and with human wisdom, all we will ever do to the scriptures is distort them and twist them to our own destruction. William Reed in his pride refused to listen to the scriptures. He refused to humble himself before God's word and, and take God at his word. And he received the just judgment for his sin. We can ask, well, what was the just judgment for William Reed's sin? Well, William Reed was only left with a Jesus stripped of his divinity and his saving power. He had a Jesus who could not save him. And we must let the plight of William Reed and all those who cling to pride and worldly wisdom settle in upon us. We can look at William's Reed life and, and we can ask, well, who will clothe William Reed in righteousness to stand faultless before the throne of God? And we can ask, well, who will call out to William Reed on that terrible day of judgment when all will appear before the great white throne of God and say, that poor sinner is mine. I redeemed him with my own blood. I've purchased his life. Who will call William Reed by name and say, well, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We ought to reckon this morning, all those who come to the scriptures in pride and worldly wisdom will find no comfort on the last day. They will find no salvation. There will be no reprieve for them. They will find no friendly or saving word. Brothers and sisters, this teaches us something profound. The prerequisite for reading the Bible with skill and integrity and faithfulness is not found in academic degrees. 
It's not found in training seminars or in the classroom. It cannot be purchased with money. Look at the life of William Reed. He was well-trained. He spent lots of money. He attended a lot of seminars, but he could not read the Bible with faithfulness or integrity. What we desperately need as we study the Scriptures is that precious fruit that only the Spirit of God can give. What do we need? We need humility. And those who profit from the Word are those who, who come to the Word ready to be subdued by it. Those who regularly gain from the word are those who come to be mastered by the word. Those who find eternal life in the word of God are those who come hungry and needy to the word of God. Isaiah 66 verse 2 should be plastered on the front of our Bibles when we go to to read them. The Lord addresses us, he says, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and, and trembles at my word. Brothers and sisters, we have to take this truth to heart. Our God does not rejoice over novel insights. Our God does not rejoice over academic prowess. Our God does not rejoice over impressive understanding. He does not rejoice over dictionary recall or the the pioneering of new information. Rather, he rejoices over one thing, the humble man, the humble woman, the humble child who comes before him and his word and says this, I am absolutely nothing. I come to you in need. I come hungry and thirsty. Won't you feed me again? Won't you give me drink again from your word? Give me life according to your word. So if we are to handle God's word, we must do it with humility. This means many things for us. It means we should be a people who pray for humility. We should be a people who labor for humility. We should be a people who seek humility like a, a precious treasure, like a precious jewel that we give up all for it that we might read the scriptures with integrity and faithfulness. So that's our task this morning, to read God's word with humility. So as we approach God's word with humility this morning, we still have the question of the mark in secret before us. Why did Jesus command silence and secrecy? Why did Jesus retreat into the wilderness? Why did he often speak in riddles? And what are we to do with this Jesus of secrecy and silence? As we begin to assess the the data that we find in Mark's gospel, we can offer up this, this definition for secrecy, and it's this. Secrecy and silence were only temporary commands given by Jesus that fittingly expressed the nature of his messiahship and advanced his mission of salvation. There's a lot there. We can just say that again. Secrecy and silence were only temporary commands given by Jesus that fittingly expressed the nature of his messiahship and advanced his mission of salvation. That's a big definition, a lot of words. We can just chew on this a bit this morning. So the first part of the definition, secrecy and silence were only a temporary command given by Jesus. So we can look for the text. Can we find this in the text of Scripture? And we do. When Jesus commanded the leper, Jairus, the deaf and mute man, and even the twelve disciples, Jesus did not intend or desire that their silence would last forever. We see in the gospel that Jesus' commands to secrecy and silence come with an expiration date. If you look at chapter 9, verse 9, we find the expiration date for secrecy and silence. Jesus says, or Mark records Jesus, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And we have to key on to that word until. 
And we find the same sort of expiration date when Jesus teaches his parable of the lamp in chapter 4, verse 22. Jesus says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So as we chew on the many secrecy and silence texts in Mark's gospel, we can confidently say this morning they don't directly apply to us. Jesus is not commanding us to silence. He's not commanding us to keep secrets. Why? Well, Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive. The time of secrecy and silence is over. So this is helpful to understand for our day-to-day lives, but we need to press into this more. We have to answer the question, why? What logic is there to secrecy and silence? Why would Jesus conduct his ministry this way? And as we start to look over the Gospel of Mark and the many stories that we've cited this morning, there seems to be many good reasons for temporary silence. Jesus commands silence after his many miracles to subdue the frenzy of the crowds. Jesus commands his disciples to silence because their knowledge of him is incomplete. They still lack faith and perception, and Peter's rebuke of Jesus makes this painfully clear. These men are in no shape to go off to the masses and proclaim the the fullness of who Christ is. Again, secrecy and silence is necessary before the crowds because they're, they're keen for a Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that Jesus intends to be for them. And so as we look at all of these reasons for silence and secrecy, they all come back to the very identity and mission of Jesus. So we can ask, why is there silence and secrecy in the Gospel of Mark? It is because Jesus is the Christ who goes to the cross. Why is there secrecy in the Gospel of Mark? It is because Jesus is the Son of God who will suffer. Secrecy and silence fittingly express and reveal the nature of who Jesus is as the Messiah. And here we need to remember what Jesus taught about himself and his mission. He says this in Mark 8.31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So as we start to sort this out, we see that Jesus' mission as the Christ, the Son of God, was not to gain the popularity of the crowds, It was not known to be as a great wonder worker. Jesus' purpose was not to court the pleasure of kings and princes. The salvation of God, the plan of God could not be accomplished through any of these means. The kingdom of God could not be established on earth through any of this. Rather, the deliverance that Jesus came to accomplish could only be achieved through one means, by going to the cross. What Mark is teaching us as we look into the secret is what this world needs is not another politician or another physician, or another entertainer, but a Savior who goes to the cross and dies. What we begin to see here is that the secrecy and silence is not a problem to be resolved. Rather, it is a theme that reveals to us the very heart of the gospel, what Jesus is all about. Jesus commands silence and secrecy because he must go to the cross, and he will not let any hindrance get in his way. He will not let the crowds get in the way, so he speaks to them in riddles. He will not let his many healings get in the way, so he commands those healed to be be quiet. He will not let his own disciples get in the way with their misconstrued ideas about messiahship, so he commands them to silence. What we see in Jesus' ministry, this silence and secrecy, is the fulfilling of God's plan from the very beginning. If you go back to your Old Testament and read the prophet of Isaiah, he begins to write and speak about a coming Savior. But a Savior that we wouldn't expect. 
a savior who would come and operate in obscurity. He wrote of a servant who would be characterized by silence and mystery. Isaiah wrote in 42, verse 2 in his book, he said, speaking of this coming savior, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. When you move from 42 to chapter 53 in Isaiah's book, the the portrait of the Savior comes into clear focus. He says this about the coming Savior of Israel, what Israel really needs. Isaiah preaches to us. For he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There's a deep logic to what Jesus is doing. This fulfills his very mission of salvation. That's what the silence and secrecy is all about. So brothers and sisters, as we look into the theme of secrecy and silence, it is not something to puzzle over, rather it is something to be embraced and grasped onto. For when we look into the secrecy and silence that we find in Mark's gospel, we behold the Jesus of our salvation. We find the Savior that we need. Just think about it. The Jesus who commanded silence, the Jesus who operated in obscurity, is the Jesus who now sprinkles the nations and makes many righteous. The Jesus who told secrets is the one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, who has pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. For in the mark and secret we find the one whose chastisement brought us peace and by whose wounds we have been healed. For in this Jesus we find in the gospel of Mark, the Lord has laid all of our iniquities upon his shoulders. He has borne them all. So brothers and sisters, the Mark and Secret calls us to humble faith this morning. It calls us to entrust ourselves again to this Jesus who commanded silence and told secrets. We must take refuge in the cross and humble ourselves before him by once again laying hold of the Jesus who died and rose again. What good news we find in the Mark and Secret. The Mark and Secret preaches to us a Savior intent on the cross. The Mark and Secret preaches to us a Savior intent on dying a, a death for sinners. The Mark and Secret reveals a Savior intent upon making satisfaction to divine justice. The Mark and Secret reveals a Savior intent on the salvation of sinners like you and me. So what we find in the Mark and Secret is the Savior that we, we need. And by faith, we can qualify that by humble faith. The Mark and Secret is calling us to lay hold of this Jesus once again. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your good word. It is true and righteous, and we need it. Father, would you free us from pride and worldly wisdom as we look into your word, and would you give us humility? Father, would we be a people who strive after humility, who long for it and pursue it and pray for it? No, Father, as we look into Mark's gospel, would you show us Christ? Father, give us faith this morning, we pray. Amen.